We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to Pop Torah with Rabbi Iznopf and Olitsky, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Welcome to Pop Torah, the podcast where we look at how pop culture influences our understanding of Judaism and how Judaism and our Jewish faith influences our understanding and appreciation of pop culture. As always, we are your hosts. I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. And today we are talking Disney Plus's new documentary miniseries, The Beatles Get Back. Yeah, that's right. And uh, we're joined today by a very special guest to talk about uh, the Beatles and rock and roll and this documentary and uh, everything that goes along with it. Um, My teacher and friend, uh, one of both of my and Jesse's uh, favorites, uh, the founder and director of Edgar 36, Billy Planer. Hey, Billy. Hey, it's great to be here. Great Good to, to have you, all. Billy. And uh, for those of us uh, at Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey, Billy and Edgar 36 uh, just helped lead uh, a group of our teenagers on a, an incredible and life-changing civil rights journey to Alabama and Georgia. And we look forward to taking uh, several more groups from our synagogue uh, to trips with Billy very soon. Yeah, I mean, oh, Billy's, Billy's teaching um, has, has uh, you know, been so transformative and, and uh, inspiring for me on, on my journey. And uh, um, people in my congregation have had the chance to learn from him virtually uh, in the past uh, uh, year or so. But um, uh, hopefully this will provide more inspiration for uh, Beth Allen, Richmond, Virginia, uh, to uh, take an Eckgar journey with, uh, with, with Billy to, um, uh, to the South. Um, or further south than we are, I guess. <laughs> um, so we're talking about the Beatles get back today. Uh, like Jesse said, this is a three-part documentary miniseries uh, that j- was just released on uh, Disney Plus, uh, produced by Peter Jackson, uh, the uh, filmmaker behind the Lord of the Rings trilogy and the Hobbit trilogies, um, uh, who, uh, in my opinion, is is one of the most groundbreaking filmmakers of our time. Produced uh, and but- directed. Right. Although using uh, footage uh, and audio uh, that was uh, mostly pre-existing, uh, well, I mean, it was all pre-existing, but uh, was mostly captured for uh, director Michael Lindsay Hogg's 1970 documentary, uh, Let It Be, um, and, and audio uh, and video from the recording of what eventually became the album, Let It Be. Um, when the Beatles get into the studio for, uh, uh, for this project, they don't really know, as we discover, they don't really know what it is that they're doing. They don't know if they're recording an album. If so, what that album is going to look or sound like. They don't really have any songs for it yet. Um, maybe there's a concert in their future uh, that's going to be maybe be also a television special. Um, and they're trying to figure that out in real time. It's, you know, they're working kind of in this blank canvas, which is reflected in this um, film studio that they're in for the start of the um uh, of the uh, of, of of the filming uh, that's really this kind of blank canvas, and you see them really kind of struggling uh, with with that, trying to figure out a direction and, and what they're going to do. Um, 
ultimately, you know, spoiler alert, uh, the, uh, the, uh, the three-part documentary uh, basically culminates with what ends up being the Beatles' last uh, live performance together. Uh, Wait, they broke the up? <laughs> Spoiler alert! Like I said, um, uh, on the roof of their uh, of, of their studios in London, uh, performing a lot of the songs that end up on the album uh, "Let It Be." This, which is actually something that I didn't quite realize when I started the documentary. Um, it, this was not only their what ended up being their last public performance, but their first uh, live performance in in a number of years before that time. Uh, they had stepped away from touring and from uh, performing live for a handful of uh, of different reasons. And so this is you know the Beatles at um, both the height of their fame um, and also in the midst of their collapse as as a group. Which, yeah. as an aside. Right. It is fascinating for me to think about somebody who chooses to walk away from it all as a group. They walked away from it all at the height of their fame. It was very, very Michael Jordan-esque of them, or at least the first part of Michael Jordan's career. Uh, Michael Jordan had done that. There was all to do. They as a group, I don't think it was they accomplished everything they wanted to accomplish. I think they realized they were unable to accomplish uh, what they wanted to at this point anymore because they realized people were judging every quote that they made, every action that they did. And this was pre-social media. I don't think they would have existed and survived in a Twitter world. You know, it's, it's interesting. Uh, did they accomplish everything they set out to accomplish? I'm not sure since they sort of wrote the playbook for this. There was no real playbook before this of how a rock and roll band becomes this rock and roll band. So I don't know when they start off the caverns in, in Liverpool, if they even envisioned where they were going to go. What is always fascinating to me about the Beatles is now we look at them and, and, you know, last couple decades, the Beatles are the, one of the ultimate bands that people refer to, but you can see it in the beginnings of this documentary too. They are trying to keep up with the Beach Boys and the Rolling Stones are trying to keep up with the Beatles. So that that time period of um, Sgt. Peppers, when that comes out, that's really just a reaction to the, the Beach Boys pet sounds. Um, there's legends. There's a midrash about uh, John Lennon, Paul McCartney hearing copies of pet sounds that, that the Beach Boys are working on in um, Laurel Canyon area of Los Angeles and realizing we've got to up our game uh, and come out with Sgt. Peppers. And of course the Rolling Stones come out with, with probably not their strongest album, but um, I'm blanking on the name, her, her Satanic Majesty, whatever the name of that album is. So we look at these as, as like the, the, the godfathers of rock and roll, but they're really just trying to keep up. So I, I'm intrigued by that idea. Did they accomplish everything they sought to accomplish? to do i don't know if they ever thought this through like this well yeah it's, uh, I mean, yeah wait i mean what you're saying is really interesting first of all because i actually uh, had heard I, I take your word for it uh, but i had heard it was the other way around that brian wilson heard sergeant peppers and had a nervous breakdown because of it um no, he had yeah. the nervous breakdown because i mean first of all i think he's predisposed to that um well, right yeah but making making pet sounds gave him the nervous breakdown wow. um but the Beach Boys, while a famous band and gets a lot of credit, I'm not sure gets the total credit of truly being the groundbreaking um, 
banned. And, and I would put forth Sergeant Peppers isn't actually the ultimate uh, counterculture psychedelic album. I, I think what's more interesting is the two right before that, Rubber Soul and Revolver are way more insightful into the shift that they're making when, as Jesse pointed out, when they stopped, or Michael, you may point out, when they stopped touring, uh, when they just could not, that was just pointless. They couldn't hear each other on the stage. There's too much screaming going on. I mean, the equivalent would be, I think, Harry Styles. You know, uh, I don't know much about Harry Styles, but I've seen some clips of his concerts. I mean, it's got to be the same kind of hysteria. Um, about the shows and you know it's interesting they played these baseball stadiums before rock and roll was the big business it is their sound was put through the same pa systems are of the time the pa systems in the stadiums today are much better the music was coming out of these little speakers uh around the stadium so you couldn't even hear the music and i think they just gave up on touring um realizing it just wasn't a work i'm always intrigued if the Beatles started now, this was the premise of that movie yesterday, I think. Um, if the Beatles really started fun now, movie. Would, fun movie. Would, would they become the Beatles today? I, I don't think so. I'm not sure people would be that into their music. Today. You know, it, it's, it's interesting. The, the premise was less about the Beatles and it was more about their music, right? That movie yeah. about an alternative reality where the Beatles never existed except for one person who knew all of their music. People still love their music. Um, I, not to uh, age myself, I, I'm a little bit younger than you, Billy, um, um, but it, it's fascinating to my parents when I was in high school and started getting into the Beatles, um, because that was like a fascinating idea to them. Um, my mother, you know, remembers deeply, like staying up late, watching them on Ed Sullivan and the, I, I don't think my kids will be into the music that I listened to a, a, as an adolescent. Um, mm. But there is something about them. I would argue that the Beatles are actually the most influential musical act of the 20th century. No, I would not argue yeah. against that. I'm just more intrigued that they were influenced. They were trying to keep up with the Beach Boys. You know, if you are the most influential act of the 20th century, I would think you're not worried about other people, but clearly they were. It was all just going in with each other there. I mean, I would argue the the other big Ed Sullivan guest, Elvis, may have been um, as, as influential, if not more. But what I appreciate about the Beatles is the, the, the music I like and that speaks to me and feeds my soul wouldn't happen without the Beatles or Elvis. So I appreciate them more for them feeding the people who feed me. I am not a massive Beatles fan. I like their music. I think it's beautiful. I think it's inspirational. Um, and I think in historic content, it's, it's interesting too, you know, um, a lot more people, a lot more people um, talk about Elvis and, and the, his, his appropriation is stealing, is taking black music to a higher audience however you fall out in that discussion the Beatles too at the beginning I mean their their first few albums with the falsettos and all that just little Richard and Chuck Berry I mean right. it's, it's it's just trying to do that right yeah you know it's a uh, um, 
I think, first of all, just to pick up on your last point, um, I think that that's really important always to underscore about the history of rock and roll. And it's, you know, you can see it and get back also, right? When, when they're playing and just jamming with each other, what, what they end up playing are a lot of Chuck Berry songs and, yeah. and things like that. They don't start coming alive uh, in their recording sessions until Billy Preston comes in and starts playing piano for yeah. them and gives, you know, gives them uh, the, the, the verve that they, that they need. You know, it's it, it's um, what, what you're saying is really interesting. First is um, it, I, as a um, fan of the Beatles, was was a late comer uh, to them. I mean, I sort of like knew and appreciated on some level their music from a very early age, but I was never a fan. I remember having fights. Did you get into friends. them before or after you got into Nine Inch Nails? Well, right. So I remember this is, what I, this is what I was saying. I, I, I remember having fights with friends at camp when I was a teenager um, trying to argue that Billy Idol was more talented than the Beatles. Um, and, uh, and, and this is what I need now is really a, uh, a Peter Jackson documentary on Billy Idol and just to hold them side by side and see, you know, who really uh, has the more massive uh, talent and, and, and carries the pressure of that massive talent. Michael, I'm not sure even Peter Jackson could make that last more than 30 minutes. Um, the Billy Idol, but this is why you were put in timeout during your youth group years. Is when you <laughs> make these kind of comparisons. And listen, I you know I I could I could go on all day and and, and talk about how I think that Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails is um, every bit as uh, as as much of a musical genius as Paul McCartney. I think that that's um, that's proven. Uh, increasingly to be true um, as the years have gone by. That, that, he... That's at Rabbi Knopf on Twitter. Okay. Mm-hmm. At me on that. Um, so you know, now that you've lost music, your audience. Different, <laughs> different, musical, different musical sensibilities, but I think, uh, and I don't know if Trent Reznor would say that, but uh, but I think he's certainly, um, probably not. Yeah, probably not. Yes, um, right. Now that we've lost all of our, our listeners, um, can we go back to the documentary? No, we're, we're like Facebook. We thrive. I, I feed on your anger. Um, <laughs> well, what was your point you're going to make? I don't know anymore. No, the point, the point I wanted to make was this. I mean, I think that that's what struck me the most about the documentary was, you know, this was the Beatles wrestling with what it meant to be the Beatles, struggling under the weight of being the Beatles, um, uh, recognizing that like at their core, what they, what, what gave them energy, what gave them life was just playing music together when the, when they were able to do that in the documentary, when they sort of like forgot about, okay, we need to record an album. It's gotta be like the next best Beatles album. Um, when they forgot about that and just jammed with one another, like you could, I could imagine totally alternative universe where the Beatles stayed together forever, just keeping on making music because they enjoyed it so much and were so good at it together. But it was this idea that like they had to be the Beatles, that they had transformed music over and over again and were being counted on to do it again. Um, and, and yet, right, um, at that point, uh, you know, they were, um, you know, they, they, it felt like they were chasing trends more than setting them. Um, and, and that, I think, that, you know, it wasn't Yoko Ono that broke up the Beatles. It was the Beatles that broke up the Beatles. Right. This, this documentary feels to me like a um, like you feel after Thanksgiving dinner. It just feels bloated. They feel bloated. They look bloated, um, tired, and still just trying to celebrate this holiday when everybody just wants to go to sleep. Um, the trace, the chasing trends is is fascinating to me in that how what is what is the shelf life of relevancy of an artist? Uh, 
because and and I think by the way the most recent um, uh, blow up with Dave Chappelle is is there's a piece of this in here too of when you hit success when you hit uh, uh, an age also how relevant are you to the angry youth the, the disenfranchised youth of America and did the Beatles have any more to really bring to um, to, I was going to say to America, to the world teenage population, young population, or did they take culture to a spot and then you sort of got to hand it over to the next people you influence? I mean, you know, we saw this with, um, I'm not a big fan either, but Madonna with Lady Gaga and, um, and other women um, artists, you know, it, nothing happens in a vacuum. And, and it's important to appreciate who fed who. But the reverse of that is sort of what we're talking about is what happens when the influencers realize we're about to be passed by other people who got there because of us. You know, that's going to be interesting. Uh, oh, right. That's an interesting thing. To all, all I want to know is could Peter Jackson have made that point in, uh, you know, less than nine hours? You know, Mike, you said that Peter Jackson <laughs> took all this footage yeah. from 60 hours of film, 150 hours of audio uh, from the Let It Be film project. I could have sworn he used all of it. He used all of it. You know, so it listen, long. As, 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 a, as maybe the resident Peter Jackson stan in, uh, in, in this group, I, I'll say first that I think that Peter Jackson um, has a tendency uh, to, uh, to, to, you know, overstuffing, um, and to, you know, bloating his films. Uh, the last, the Hobbit trilogy is a, is a perfect example of that. Um, and so, you know, could he have trimmed some fat in this? Maybe, you know, I, I, I don't know, but it's, uh, but I want to argue for the power. I, I found myself not being able to look away, um, and, and can, like, you know, two hours would pass. I've basically just been watching, you know, four guys sitting in a room together, you know, uh, noodling on their instruments for two hours. But it didn't seem like that long to me, my experience watching it. Um, and I and I felt like the moments of brilliance that came out, right? Paul McCartney, um, like seeming to summon, get back out of thin air. The, uh, the catharsis of that final performance on the on the rooftop which by the way like on the ground level looked like nothing like it was you know it like it looked I remember I, I remember only ever seeing kind of like the images of the of, and maybe clips of the rooftop concert and be like wow how amazing must that have been and they performed really well but to no audience it was it was so funny but that moment was so powerful you could see the joy and the and the excitement of uh, the energy of the beatles coming back together and performing live so i don't know if those moments would have had as much power had you not had the 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 hum underneath of their process and that to me was really incredible like watching the beatles artistic process um was something that i didn't know that I was missing in my life, um, but having watched it, um, I, I was just amazed, and it made me feel better about myself. Right, like I have to come up with, you know, with with. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not let it be uh, or yellow submarine, right? But um, but I have to come up with, you know, a, a, a something of a of a like, let's call it a piece of art, you know, every week in, in a sermon, right? Um, and I don't have the like time uh, uh, to like sit in a studio and um, and, and noodle. Scribbled with crayon. 
right? Until the, I scribble the until the, until the inspiration kind of like falls out of the sky for me. So like, anyway, thinking about that artistic process was really powerful. I, I looked at it though, sort of opposite. First of all, Michael, probably Justin Bieber might be more appropriate, uh, the art you're creating weekly. Um, Justin Bieber. Probably, probably hey. more like Billy Idol, I think. <laughs> I've seen Justin um, Bieber in concert. It's a damn good yeah. show. Um, I viewed it as the, the old adage of you never want to see how like sausage is made. You never want to see how bills are made in, in, in politics. Um, I don't know if I needed to see the Beatles struggling like that. Like I'm fine listening to their, their finished product and being influenced by that. I almost didn't want to go behind the curtain and see mm. it. Um, I understand that and appreciate what you're saying there, but uh, it's just interesting. But um, yeah, I, going back, uh, uh, call back for a second, back to Billy Preston. At the very beginning, um, I forgot who brought it up in the, in the, among the Beatles, but at the very beginning, they talk about Billy Preston. Somebody saw him uh, perform and I'm like, well, we all know he ends up on this album. And I just wanted to push them. I was sort of going the Jesse direction of, can we just fast forward about 20 hours and, and go to go get Billy Preston. It's going to change things, but it is fascinating. Um, you know, in this modern talk of uh, when we talk about language and appropriation and uh, cultural appropriation, I mean, rock and roll is rife with that. There would not be, I, I heard somebody talk about um, the Rolling Stones appropriating black music. And I think it may have been Mick Jagger who retorted, or I heard somebody respond to that and go, there would be zero British invasion if you were going to cancel anybody who was appropriating or borrowing, or I like to say influenced by. I mean, I, I don't know if I see the problem of if you're influenced by something, letting it influence you. Um, but uh, so the bringing in of Billy Preston um, is, is very interesting and it makes sense to me that that would bring them alive. I just, yeah, I mean, I want to just uh, uh, pull on that thread for a second. You know, uh, it's, it's a really interesting question. Like, I don't know if Mick Jagger or Paul McCartney um, were trying to appropriate Black music, um, but they certainly benefited from, uh, from you know, being white kids uh, playing that music um, and being able to make, like, you know, uh, ex extraordinarily greater sums of money based on playing that from playing that music than their black counterparts were able to right even even the even the big names like chuck berry little richard right never came anywhere close to the level of financial right. commercial success as the beatles and the rolling stones well yeah i would say the 60s you didn't have the vocabulary of the word appropriation back then people weren't talking about it the way they do now um, but you know, you don't get the legends are, you don't get Mick Jagger meeting Keith, Keith Richards until they run into each other at a record store looking for chess records, a Chicago two Jewish Russian owners of chess label, but it's blues music, muddy waters. Um, uh, the Beatles heavily influenced by, you know, BB King, um, uh, once again, sister Rosetta Thorpe with her guitar playing. Uh, really consider one of the first electric guitar 
uh, a woman in their church band playing uh, uh, the electric guitar, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, obviously. Um, but they also are influenced by Elvis, who clearly is influenced by B.B. King, Big Mama Thornton, Rufus Thomas. Uh, Elvis does nothing original. Elvis just covers that music because the record company, the radio station would play a little Richard Chuck Berry. So it's, it's a give and take. It's uh, did they appropriate or take the music to the masses? And what you, what I don't think you can argue. And we talked about this on Jesse's trip um, with his teenagers is once white kids were listening to that music, it helps break down the cultural uh, divide between white kids and black kids. If you're listening to that music, all of a sudden you've got something in common and you can talk about that. And that, that black kid listening to the same song you do, you, you're listening to goes from the other to just another. And um, it really, uh, I don't think you can argue that it, it changes the trajectory of the civil rights movement, uh, rock and roll music changes i mean music internally within the black community of black musicians but then getting white kids to listen to black music um you know you're seeing it today too by the way you know uh, uh kids love the beatles and elvis because their parents hated it had their parents liked rock and roll the beatles never would have happened um, but because the beatles caused this reaction in the adults it helps uh, elevate it for the kids. Um, I, I, I often think, um, how do white suburban Jewish teens, why are they into rap and hip hop? Because their parents are not, you know, it, it's, it's the musical form their parents, not most parents don't appreciate, don't like. So this, this really helps, uh, um, get those kids to like it. Music is always subversive at its best. Um, well, so. well, right. If music is meant to be a, a way to um, push back on one's parents and on what they believe, that sort of thing. Um, we also can't deny the messages within that music. I think part of the challenge with the Beatles, Mike, I think you said that they just wanted to play music um, was that they realized that their songs, which were originally about um Wanting to hold people's hands about right sex and, and love and, and drugs or whatever, they, they took on more political stances, right? They they were speaking out against war and that sort of thing, right? When what what was it? It was at the beginning of the, the first episode. What led them to one of the things that led them to stop performing live was that they were being picketed outside their performances because John Lennon like made made a statement just like off-the-cuff statement saying that they're more famous than Jesus Christ. We're bigger than Jesus, yeah. Right, and that's, and that's right-wing Christians started picketing their performances. Uh, to me, when thinking about what the Jewish lessons are from this, I think the Beatles were reminded that their words matter and that the larger your soapbox, the more your words matter. And they were conflicted between on one end saying, okay, I have this large soapbox. I have this huge megaphone. My words matter. What do I do with that? And being afraid to say anything at all. Well, the backlash was huge. Um, and, you know, when, when John explains it in that first episode and the first time I ever heard that story too, I was like, 
you know what? They probably were bigger than Jesus at the time uh, to the larger segment of the country. Um, but also, I, I, I think it's, it's we should not view the Beatles through 2021 lenses and that they were creating the playbook as they were going along. So, for example, just two years later, George Harrison does the benefit for Bangladesh. Never been done before. And there's a direct link from that to Live Aid to every benefit concert you see here. And um, watching the documentary about um, that, uh, that concert, I mean, he had no idea how this was going to work. Um, or just recently, uh, Springsteen just released the No Nukes concert. I mean, that's really the next big one that, that, that happens. Um, so, I mean, the Beatles were just creating this template that, that, that bands followed um, uh, maybe simultaneously. Uh, I don't know if the Stones just followed it or not, but uh, it just didn't exist on this uh, level. And um, so to, to say, how are they doing this? They, they were sort of making it up as, as they were going along. You know, they broke the mold of uh, writing your own music uh, that destroys the Brill Building, um, Phil Spector uh, era in New York City of the producer, or Motown also, the producer driven music to focusing on the band. It's unheard of. So it brought the power back to the songwriter. Um, singer songwriter they basically created that model too the singer songwriter doing their own thing so their influence is way beyond just the actual songs themselves but the whole idea of being a rock star they were sort of you know w waking up and making it happen uh each day so uh you know and john lennon of course gets involved in protest music and, and taking music to a whole nother level. Um, and then Paul McCartney figuring out, you know, what do you do after the Beatles? How do you do a second act? Well, one would argue third act. I mean, Wings was a massive, massive band in the seventies. And then of course his solo act is, is huge. And Ringo. And he um, was knighted. Yeah. And so he was Ringo. Knighted. Yeah, but that, but, but 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 he's an over overrated knight. Ooh, ooh. Um, I think I think that what this uh, what this movie said to me is, you know, uh, above all else, is that we owe Ringo an apology. <laughs> um, I think Ringo uh, proved himself to be probably the most professional and and uh, um, and, and at least on par of a talent with with uh, with with the rest of them. Um, but here's the thing. Here's what um, there's a few things that strike me in, in what uh, you're just saying, Billy. Um, the first is I need to get this off my chest. Um, I think that I know most about uh, the end of the Beatles from the Simpsons episode uh, with Homer's barbershop quartet. Um, and uh, and Bart says to Homer, Did, what, what happened? Did you screw up like the Beatles and say you were bigger than Jesus? And he says, all the time. It was the title of our second album. So um, <laughs> um, go back and rewatch that episode. Also on Disney That's Plus. kind of amazing. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so that's number one. But it, but it does go to show you uh, what, what you're saying, Billy, like the, that, you know, um, if, if an artist were to say, if Kanye were to say that now, which I think Kanye has said something like that in the past, uh, 
You mean Jesus? Jesus, yeah. right? Jesus, right? right. He, he called himself. himself, right? So, um, <laughs> um, you know, it, people people don't really it, it doesn't it doesn't phase people in the same way. So they they really are you know inventing the the playbook and they're changing the nature of music and they're changing the world in all the ways that you said. And what this you know so first you know from a from a like a spiritual standpoint to a, 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 a wisdom standpoint, it's it's you know, a, a question that I don't know the answer to about, you know, if, if you're a trailblazer, um, wh- what what do you do when you run out of trail, right? Uh, or when you don't know, you know, which which way to go next, because everybody's so far behind you that you, yeah. that you, you, you you're, you're just as lost as you were when you started. So that's number one. And then two is, okay, you know, we talk a lot about tikkun olam in, in Judaism. And I know that you spent a lot of time uh, talking about this um, uh, as, a, as an educator, Billy. Um, but what, what do you do after Tikkun Olam? Like, what's, what's the next day look like after you've changed the world? Well, first of all, you post about it on Facebook. Right, um, of course, yeah. But uh, didn't really happen unless you did. <laughs> right, right, right. So to your first point for a second, I remember reading a review of a Bob Dylan album from the 80s where the review started, what do you do when you're Bob Dylan and your most important work has already happened and you're not even 40 years old? So um, Dylan uh, fanatics will tell you he's still relevant, still important. Um, most, I think, will tell you uh, he's just moved on. I mean, he's basically he stopped worrying about it and just did what's, what's important to him, what matters, what, what, how this plays out for him. And you got to respect that because I don't know, once again, um, how you can be 70 years old and still it shouldn't be that you're um relevant to teenagers uh at 70 how how can you be um i would actually argue it'd be harder when you're like 50 when you're sort of closer to their age um so i that's a great question i think you just have to i i think one of the things i've learned from dylan from from springsteen um I don't know if Madonna learned this lesson so much or not, uh, because I think she's still trying to think she can retain what she had is you sort of got to more be true to yourself and trust your process and trust your, that your audience is going to come along with you um, because you're not going to capture so much in mass, the 20 year olds, that's going to be for somebody else to get. Um, and, and I think you can go from the Beatles to other superstars to somebody we joked about, Justin Bieber, but you go from Justin Bieber to a Harry Styles today. And, um, you know, that's who should be up in front of teenagers today, influencing them. It should not be a Paul McCartney. Um, and as somebody who's gotten older, I wouldn't want my Paul McCartney's to be a teen idol right now. I, I want to hear what does Paul McCartney have to say at, at 70 years old, at 75, however old he is. Uh, that's way more intriguing to me. I'm a, I've referenced him a few times. I'm a big Springsteen fan. He, his albums, Get out of here. Have, <laughs> his albums have sort of, Why you never mentioned been, this before. <laughs> I, I keep it subtle. Um, so, uh, his albums have sort of been like almost guideposts, street signs along my journey. And that they're always just a year, a couple of years ahead of where I'm going to be, but I grow into them. 
and I appreciate that he has moved on. He's not still the uh, searching, uh, tinge of angry, born to run Springsteen. That just wouldn't work. As no, a, now uh, he now he writes books with President Obama. Right, right, right. You know, um, and and so uh, you know he has that line of basically there's nothing harder to watch than a rich man in a poor man's uh, outfit. You know, trying to be that everyday man. Um, so, uh, but number two, what do you do the next day? Is you keep looking. I mean, what's the next? What's the next fight? You know, no fight, no social justice fight is over. There's going to be another piece to it. But is your work? I, I almost think is your work still getting to the people it needs to. So you break down one barrier, there's going to be others there. Um, so, or other people's struggles or teaching people to come behind you. So for example, once again, this whole same idea of my struggle at 55 years old is very different than things I thought were wrong when I was 20. Some things are the same, unfortunately. The fights are, some of them are still the same uh, in a social justice aspect, but you know, uh, the teenagers that come on my summer trip and uh, they're on my bus, they're, they're dealing with other things that, that I just can't, I'm just not there or have the energy to. So all I do is just try and show blueprints of this is what's worked. This is what hasn't worked. Um, and now go blaze your own trails. So it's sort of still being true but really helping people find their own avenue, their own lanes. Uh, Cause I think it's dangerous to tell everybody this is how you fight injustice uh, in this lane only. Everybody's gonna do their own thing. Uh, I don't know if that's a total answer to your question, but um, that's what I think is the next day. I mean, it, it, it is, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a profound answer. And what you're essentially saying is that there's, you know, that there's no such thing as uh, finishing the work of fixing the world, right? That there's that there are always more battles to fight. Um, that there's uh, that, that there's always more work to be done. Um, I like that, to say, Michael, you're not free to desist from it. Either. That's what I like to say. I believe right. Rabbi Tarfun learned that from you, Billy. He appropriated it. Yes, he appropriated it <laughs> to get to his audience. <laughs> but uh, you know, I heard George Clooney say this once. Uh, it's not his line either, but, you know, in the fight for social justice, you fail and you fail and you fail and you fail again until you don't, you know. So it's your winning percentage is not great, but you only with each issue you win, you know, you just keep trying until you don't fail. Um, so I, I, I think that's it. There's always going to be because if you are paving the way for the next group the the younger generation just like with rock and roll the next bands are going to come right behind the beatles and have more energy and that fire and spark that they lose because they've made it you know you're only so angry and hungry until you're satisfied you know until you have some satisfaction in you and uh it's the billy joel line, a song of angry young man i mean you're 50 years old and still standing on the street corner screaming at people, you're becoming a little irrelevant. But when you're 15, when you're 20 and filled with that kind of energy and fire, that's important. That's what's needed. 
And Harav Springsteen said this once. He goes, any any rock star comes from having this fire in them that they need to get out. He said, but if you focus that fire, that rage, that energy, it can be a powerful tool, but it very easily could burn you up doing it. So, you know, you got to figure out how to do it, but also just come back to sometimes as Mick Jagger says, it's only rock and roll. And uh, but I while, like it. I, yes, while I think music and rock and roll can change the world, also you're, you're supposed to dance and celebrate. I mean, so Jesse, it is about sex. It is about love. It is about just dancing uh, because life is supposed to be joyful. Uh, so we can't all just be in black overcoats and duct tape pants dancing or moping to nine inch nails. Sometimes you got to put some Michael Jackson on and, and dance to it as well. Um, the pants still work though. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the fascinating thing when, when we take uh, teenagers to Memphis, we're talking about the history of rock and roll, the social movements that all come in and out of as, as, as rock goes and pop music, especially. You know, take the song Want to Be Starting Something by Michael Jackson. It is just uh, infectiously danceable. Even I can dance to that, and you want to. But then you listen to the lyrics, and it's all about the issues in the inner city and, and, and broken families. And it's some serious stuff he's talking about. But what he's reminding you is you also can dance to it. So life is that tension of, of celebrating and joy without totally forgetting. And, and so Jesse, to you, I would say, you know, you asked about like some of the Jewish lessons. I'm just reminded as I'm saying that the whole idea of the broken glass at a wedding, you know, it's your ultimate joy. So try and remember, I mean, today is Harry Chapin's birthday. Um, singer, songwriter, activist. I mean, day of the recording, I, not the day of, of uh, the episode dropping for all oh, of our right millions of listeners out there yes uh for your listener in south dakota uh it's um harry chapin would probably say he's an activist first uh he famously said he plays one concert for himself and one concert for the other people like he gave away his money but um you know his songs were were just focused on that and um he was intense on that and and hunger was his issue and um uh and some people would say, yeah, but music's also got to lift your spirit. So I, what I love about music, it's there for all of it. And, and the Beatles, definitely, you know, you see the trajectory from I want to hold your hand. I mean, there's the famous, there's a famous midrash about when the Beatles met with Bob Dylan. And I don't know if this is true or not, but it's a great story. Uh, so I like to, I like to tell it, but um uh, when Dylan and the Beatles met, uh, Dylan was acoustic, and um, and Dylan knew that uh, the Beatles were the future, this electric rock and roll. But he said to them, he goes, you know, what y'all are doing with your music is great, and you've got these girls that are screaming their heads off, but what are you doing with them? I mean, sure, they're dancing, but what are you doing with their head? Like, are you moving them? And so all of a sudden the Beatles start to work on revolver and, and, and rubber soul and, and moving to a more cerebral uh, music. 
but also then what the Beatles influenced Dylan was he knew that the electric was the way to go. So he famously plugs in at the folk festival, Newport Folk Festival, and gets booed off stage at the height of his popularity. But they both realized that that they both had something to offer the other. Um, of course, the other part of that is uh, uh, Dylan does um, introduce them to mind-altering substances in that meeting too. That that helps change their music as well uh, and and broadens their minds. But I love this idea of what are you doing with your music? You know, what are you doing? With yeah, it's really powerful. I mean, you know, a lot of what you're saying it reminds me of you know, take a bird's eye view of uh, of, of Judaism um, as a whole, right? That uh, there's you know, um, you know stories told of a guy who goes to his rabbi and says, you know, I, I I'm done with Judaism. It's just too like stodgy and serious and boring. And the rabbi says, well, you know, tell me about your Jewish experience. And the guy says, well, you know, I come on uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and it's just like so high church and stodgy and stand up yeah. and sit down and it's all death and whatever. And, and the Man, that's oh, synagogue well, in Richmond. <laughs> that's, that, that's the, that's the, the rabbi says, that's the problem is you're, you're coming the wrong times. Like come, come on Simchat Torah and Purim and, and you'll see a different Judaism. And so yeah. the, you know, so a year later, the guy comes back and says, rabbi, I'm, I'm done with Judaism. I, I, like you said, I came on Simchat Torah and I came on Purim and I'm just done with it. It's just not serious. Right. Yeah. But that's the truth of, of uh, Judaism. I think why Judaism remains so resonant to me is that it's got it holds both of those things. Right. Both yeah. um, uh, nourishment for your mind and uh, and uh, inspiration for what to care about in the world, uh, for engagement deeply in the world and also opportunities to dance and celebrate and, and rejoice. Right. We, in the ark, we carried the whole tablets and the broken tablets. Right. So we hold those things simultaneously. Um, the, the brokenness of our world, the sadness and pain and challenge of our lives um, that we have to engage with and, and wrestle with, um, right? When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me speaking words of wisdom, let it be. Um, but we also, you know, um, uh, you know, I saw her standing there and I just want to hold your hand. You know, we, we're, we're dancing too. Um, and that's also an important part of life and, and uh, uh, worthy of, of celebration. Yeah, uh, to me, it, it's summed up in a little Jewish boy from Cleveland, Mark Cohn, who goes to Memphis and famously meets uh, Muriel, who is a, a blues musician, uh, rhythm and blues musician in, in Memphis. And she calls him up. She, he had met her and, and talked to her. And you all know where this song is going. These lyrics are going. But she calls him up and yells out to him, are you a Christian child? And it's a Jewish boy who knows he's not, but he looks at her and goes, ma'am, I am tonight, meaning the religion of rock and roll, not the Christianity of the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost, but uh, of the redemption, of, of the liberation, of the freedom, of, of the, the sexuality, the, the just the total freeing of the mind, body, and spirit. Um, and I think we are all disciples. We wouldn't be talking about this if we were not all disciples of the almighty uh, religion of rock and roll and its redemptive uh, practices. Um, yeah. You know, I, I also think if when we look at Torah, the most influential aspects that um, are, are either prayerful experiences in scripture or things that uh, were meant to be 
tossed to the Israelites are all through song, right? We have Shirat Hayam, the only way that, that Moses and Miriam knew how to respond to this new sense of freedom and, and what even our tradition teaches us, the greatest miracle that our people have ever experienced is through song. Um, when Moses is about to leave this world, he's climbed up Mount Nebo and he's imparting the lessons that he wants the Israelites to remember when he's gone. Uh, he sings to them. Uh, and I think the idea that melodies resonate and that songs resonate, I think really speaks to us. Um, truthfully, even to myself, I don't hear my kids chanting words of tefillah, words of prayer, but I will hear them, you know, at the dinner table singing certain prayers as songs. And well, one may look at it as a way that we are, are almost not taking prayer seriously enough. I would say the opposite, that by adding song to the words of prayer, both the liturgy, but also the messages that musicians want to share with this world, by adding music to them, those messages become alive. And it's those, those musical notes and melodies that reach the heavens, that reach God, and that also reach our eardrums, the eardrums of those made in God's divine image and inspires all of us as well. Let's say this, Jesse, yes, yes, and um, that's why I think a nigun can be a prayer. You know, just the tune can be, to me, as effective a prayer as any words on there. And uh, Jerry Garcia once talked about um, the silence between the notes too. <laughs> so it's, it's a yes, and sometimes the silence helps build the music, but to me, the Nigun, I, I think Shlomo Karlbach understood that too. Uh, you can reach the prayer, the ecstasy of prayer, not necessarily just through words, but just the moving of the soul. And, and um, I don't know if it was the prophet or the commentator uh, ran from Footloose who talked all about, uh, you know, the time to dance. There's a time to, I mean, he's quoting uh, Ecclesiastes, um, which then the birds covered. Uh, you know, successfully in their song, but there is a time to dance and a time to mourn. And, and, and so getting back to uh, Michael's uh, point, which I think he learned on the third wild goose chase of his sophomore year uh, overnight uh, discussion. Um, yeah. It, there were, there it's were, all on the wild goose chases, there were times to dance and times to mourn. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, uh, those are overnights of our youth group back in the day, uh, but and it's all encompassing. So, you know, and, and Michael, things, Michael's nickname was actually the wild goose. That's where <laughs> really it was just time to mourn when he showed up. But um, uh, it's, it's to me what, what I, why I, uh, you know, the two bands that I, I followed were the Grateful Dead and, and Springsteen. You can look at it almost in a comparison to prayer. And that um, every, if you pray every day, you're not going to reach that moment of transcendence, of, of joy, of just moving your soul. But you're chasing that in hopes of that. Some days you get there, some days you don't. So, I mean, when I go to the uh, multiple concerts, because there are some that just move me, and I'm chasing those. And while they're still good when they don't, there's something about one when you know it's happening. Um, and each each of their shows um, were full spectrums from political rally to just circus to all of this. And, and it should be a good movie should do that. Good book, a 
good conversation like this one um, should should cover all of that as well because it's all life. It's all contained. Well, let us know what you think of Peter Jackson's The Beatles Get Back. Let us know if you're able to get through all 60 hours <laughs> of it. Uh, but in, in all seriousness, um, let if, us know if you do, you if you do, you can uh, reach out to me. We'll talk about the surprise ending together. <laughs> uh, time I'll never get back. That's for sure. In all seriousness, uh, let us know your thoughts, uh, what you think of the power of music and what music has to teach us, because I, I think, Billy, you're spot on. And uh, may may music move all of us uh, to share our tour with the world. Uh, and to understand that our words matter, uh, may it help us analyze what purpose we have in this world. Um, instead of just singing about sex, drugs, and rock and roll, uh, that's part of it, but, but, but uh, sing with purpose uh, because our words are holy and our words matter. Uh, thank you so much, Billy, for joining thank us you. in this conversation. Um, thank you, Mike, for being the butt of a lot of our jokes today, as always. Uh, and, my role. and until next time, I am Rabbi Jesse Olitsky. And I'm Rabbi Michael Knopf. Take care, everyone.